Let's open in prayer. Gracious God, you are worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our attention. You're worthy of our imitation. Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue in our worship today in your word. And I pray that we would be convicted by your word for our behavior, for our actions, and for our heart affections. But I pray also, Lord, that we would be encouraged. Help us, O oh God, to delight in you more today in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to finish Matthew 17 today. And uh, so I am not quite as old as a lot of you, but I'm also not quite as young as a lot of people either. So uh, when I was in middle school, CD players, portable CD players that ran on batteries were basically brand new, at least the new versions that could also connect to radio stations. And a lot of my friends started listening to, uh, to radio stations. And um, I mean, if you, if you know any of the Portland area stations, man, 101 KUFO was my jam. It was all hard rock, not the classic rock like Guns N' Roses, but it was the, the, the newer bands. And they had a segment basically right when we got off of school uh, for a gentleman named Howard Stern. Now, if you know who Howard Stern is, he's an ugly, ugly guy. Uh, <laughs> and he dyes his hair. He says he doesn't. But he was what's known as a shock jock. His radio program was dedicated to offending as many people as possible. And in fact, he's actually still on the radio. But my friends would pop in their portable CD players, connect to the radio station. And when we were riding the bus home, uh, most of my friends would be listening to Howard Stern. Now, again, if you know what a shock jock is, then this is more helpful. But a shock jock was basically a radio personality, but TV shows picked up the same mentality of shock jocking. And that's actually what it's called, where, where in, in order to be funny, the person just tries to make everyone mad. Now, many people today seem to think that Jesus was a form of shock jock. Not like Howard Stern. Howard Stern is inappropriate, terrible, uh, and, and all, altogether awful. Um, but a lot of people try to, uh, try to phrase Jesus' methodology as a form of like first century shock jocking, as if he was going around trying to surprise people and, and, and make people mad and even mess with the Pharisees. But the reality is that Jesus was not trying to be a shock jock. He was actually tending to the souls of the, of, of the people that he encountered. Um, sometimes his message was offensive, but it was most often offensive to the religious elite. Um, but most of the time, people got offended with him because they didn't think he had anything worth saying. And so they, they, they got upset at him. So when we read the Gospels, most of the people that are upset at Jesus are, are, are Jesus isn't trying to get upset with. He isn't trying to make them mad. That's just kind of the way it ends up. So um, let's read our text for today. And let's actually listen to Christ's word about causing an offense and what, what his heart is, and actually learn a little bit about our duties as Christians toward others in our culture today. So Matthew 17, starting in verse 24. 
When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax, or tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the sons of the, or to, from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's walk through and interpret a little bit of this here. Um, first of all, the two drachma tax. You and I don't pay our bills in drachmas. And if we did, it would be kind of weird. But a drachma was a form of, of money that was used in Rome at the time. A two, two drachmas was essentially half a shekel of money. That helps, right? You also probably weigh all your measurements in shekels, don't you? Um, the, the, the math doesn't really matter, nor does, nor does the inflation for today. What we need to remember is that two drachmas equals one half shekel. All right? Two drachmas, one half shekel. This tax that the people were bringing towards Jesus is actually a yearly tax that all Jews paid as a ransom for their lives. That's actually literally what it's called. If we were to go back to Exodus 30, we would see the establishment of this tax. Basically, there was a uh, there was there was a survey done of all the the men of Israel or all the people of Israel, but specifically the men 20 years and up. And all the people of Israel had to pay this tax every year. It was a half shekel. And it was a ransom for their lives. Essentially, they had to pay this tax in order to support the tabernacle and, and, and eventually make the tabernacle beautiful. And then, then the, whole, the whole of it carried on all the way to the building of the Davidic temple. Um, off and on, people would pay this tax all throughout Israel's history. But the Pharisees revived it because they're money-grubbing little stinkers. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant because they care about the temple. Because they care about the temple, uh, they revived this tax. And so, again, there was a half shekel tax. And so, again, this was brought before Jesus. Now, again, I, I mentioned Exodus 30. So in Exodus 30, um, Moses writes this. Each, well, God says it. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, because the sanctuary is where you weighed the shekel and determined it. The shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. So that's verses 30, or 13 and 14 in Exodus 30. And then it was finally enacted eight chapters later for the first time in Exodus 38. And again, Moses records the silver, the silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was a hundred talents and 1,775 shekels. So if you do that math, there's a lot of them. Uh, by this shekel of the sanctuary, a becca ahead, that is half a shekel, by the shekel of the sanctuary for everyone who is listed in the records, 20 years old and upward. 
that all helps, right? Totally understood all of that. Right, no, it's right over your head, right. But this made sense to the Israelites. The point is that they were paying this tax and they would do it every single year to the glory of God. And they would give other offerings throughout the year as well, but this was like a special offering, right? This is, this is very, very intentional so that the temple or the tabernacle at the time can be supported. But what I want you to take away from all this weird math is that this was a Jewish tax, not a Roman tax. This isn't something that the civil authorities charged. This is something that the Jews expected other Jews to pay. Again, any, any Jew 20 years and upward. Now, when they ask the question, does your teacher not pay? That sentence is kind of a funny sentence in the Greek. There's both a double negative and a double positive. And uh, this question could be rendered, your teacher does pay the tax, doesn't he? It assumes the answer is yes. And it's, it's, it's not meant in a mean way. It's, it's meant in a, in, a, in a way that just kind of assumes that Jesus does, right? So they go up to Peter. Peter's one of the leaders, right? He's in Jesus's inner circle. And so they, they ask the question, hey, hey, your, your teacher pays the tax, doesn't he? Now, just as a, as a, as a side note, um, ordained ministers, so Pharisees and Sadducees and those that, that worked in the temple, were historically exempt from this tax. You will find that nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. But the practice at the time was that anybody that was ordained into the ministry was exempted from having to give this particular offering. But Jesus was not ordained. He was a traveling itinerant minister. He was a traveling itinerant rabbi, a traveling itinerant teacher. So he was not ordained. He did not bear the title of Pharisee. And so therefore, the people that go up and ask him, they're assuming the answer is yes, because he's not wearing the tassels. He doesn't do pharisaical duties or, or Sadducees duties. And so they just kind of assume he pays it because he's Jewish. And then Jesus has this evidentiary statement, which is a little difficult to understand. Uh, when Peter comes back, Peter... Pe Peter doesn't even go up to Jesus and go, hey, um, we were hit up for the two drachma tax. That doesn't even happen. Jesus, like Peter comes into this house that they're staying at. Remember, Capernaum was their home base. And so Peter comes into this house and Jesus walks right up to Peter. And he gives this kind of anecdotal little story, right? He, he, he raises the question. Uh, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when, he said, when Peter replies, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Now, again, this is kind of hard to understand. Uh, I, I had to read a lot of biblical commentary on this because actually I was wrong. In the beginning, I thought this was a civil tax. I thought this was a Roman tax. So, so when I read it the first time, I was like, well, how come my Bible has a little statement that says the temple tax and read some commentaries? This image that Jesus is giving um, 
is because historically at the time, magistrates, Roman authorities, so civil authorities, now you get my confusion, uh, civil authorities would impose taxes on areas. And they, would, they had full reign to impose whatever tax they wanted. And then tax collectors would hike up the rate so that they could make a profit on the taxes as well. But the magistrates, when they set these taxes, they would actually show favoritism to certain people. And it was usually just those of their family. So if you happen to be a Roman governor and you happen to have a son who was, I don't know, a, a, a janitor in your palace, let's say, then you would say, exempt those of my family from this tax. They don't have to get it. And this is really different from our culture. Um, in our country, we have this wonderful uh, branch of the government called the Internal Revenue Service. And we all love the IRS, right? Absolutely adore it. We love sending in those forms every year. And we have a big old feast uh, when we do it. No, we don't. Uh, <laughs> but the IRS exists to actually stop people from doing this sort of a thing. Where, like, if you were governor of... I don't know, uh, I almost said Alaska, Gov governor of Arizona, right? You can't just say, oh, by the way, my kids are exempt from taxes. The IRS would say, that's silly. No, <laughs> that's not the way it works. And there, there is a difference between having a relative, maybe in some sort of power that knows how to use or cheat uh, the system. Um, that does happen. And usually the IRS seems to catch that. Um, or not usually, but they do seem to catch it and makes people really mad when they do. But it's, it's different. What Jesus is talking about is something very specific to his time, where again, the civil magistrates could show favoritism. They could exempt people from these taxes. And the point that Jesus is making when he says the sons are free is that he is the son of God. And this temple is set up literally to glorify his father and him, but to glorify his father. Therefore, as son of God, he is exempt from the necessity of this tax. That's the point Jesus is making. He's not setting a tax principle. He's not, he's not telling people that it's okay to cheat on your taxes. He's, he's saying that he's exempt. He shouldn't have to pay this. It is his divine lineage and right to say, no thanks, I don't need to do it. But he is willing to pay it. Now moving to the miracle, the miracle itself is actually not explained. I mean, it is, it's told how to do it, but we never actually read of Peter throwing his fishing rod into the in, into the. Um, he probably probably would have used a net, but we, we don't we don't read of Peter actually getting the fish. Matthew Matthew is not trying to draw a point when he really states this miracle. And actually, what's funny to me is apparently it's pretty common to find fish with money in their mouths. And I'm not kidding. Um, if you Google weird things found in fish, 
you will find some really strange things, uh, especially sharks. When they, when somebody catches a shark and decides to cut it open, I mean, the things that fall out of the shark's stomach are just astounding. But apparently at this time, it was not that uncommon to go to the fish market, buy a fish, cut it open, and oh, look, there's a coin in here. And when I say not that uncommon, I mean potentially one in a million, but it still ended up happening because fish see something shiny and fish go gulp. Mm, that wasn't very nutritious. And then they move on with their day. So the, the, the miracle here is underemphasized by Matthew. He doesn't show us Peter going and getting it. Um, but just to confuse you even more, when, when, he sa when Jesus says, go and you're going to find a shekel in, uh, in, in the fish, he says, you'll open its mouth and you'll find a shekel in the ESV. Uh, the Greek word is a, is a stater, um, which was another form of currency because there were like 50 forms of currency in, the, in, in Rome at the time. But a stater was equal to one shekel or four drachmas. There you go. Now you're even more confused, right? So the tax is two drachmas, but in this fish you're going to find a coin that equals four drachmas. And so the, the, the command of Jesus is take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. But again, we don't read of Peter going and doing this. So the, the miracle is actually not the point. It's, it's not too surprising that you might actually find a coin in a fish's mouth. It is surprising that you would find a coin worth so much. Um, a, a, a two drachmas was equal to about half a day's work. So um, just keep that in, in the back of your mind. Anyway, the, 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 the point is that Jesus had to tell Peter to go get money from a fish. Go shake down the fish for your own money, right? The point is that apparently the disciples didn't actually have money to pay this tax. There's a couple reasons why that could be. The most probable is that Jesus didn't actually demand any payment for miracles, right? When he did healings, he didn't say, all right, now pay up. He didn't do that. So he, they, they were operating on donations. The, there was the, the, the kid that brought food enough for the disciples, and Jesus decided to multiply that and feed the crowd, right? But that's how the disciples lived, was on people bringing them food and bringing them money. And they didn't have the money to pay this. Jesus didn't have the money to pay this. Peter didn't. So, again, the probable reason for them being penniless is that Jesus didn't charge for the healings. Another probable reason is that Judas was thieving from the money bag. Uh, if, you, if we were to turn to John 12, verses 5 and 6, we would read Judas getting really ticked off about, uh, about, the, uh, about Jesus having ointment and nard poured on his feet. Um, Judas gets all ticked off and says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? That, by the way, is worth 300 days of work. Um, not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. And then John commentates, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. 
So there's another possible reason that Jesus was penniless. And the third, and another really probable one, is because the disciples had just returned to their home base, which means that when they walked in the town, they would have been greeted by all the Roman tax collectors, and they would have been like, hey, hey, you've been gone a while. Have you paid your taxes? <laughs> and that's probably why Jesus got hit up for the temple tax, too, as it happened to be tax season. But the point, again, is that the disciples were penniless. They were out of money. And Jesus wanted to honor this tax. He wanted to pay it. And so he provided for the means for it to happen. But the point is not that Jesus even provided for this or his father provided for it. The point actually exists in the rationale of verses 26 and 27. The point of this passage exists when Jesus explains that the sons are free declaring again his own exemption from the tax, and then his reason for paying the tax anyway, which is not to give offense to them. Jesus paid a tax that he did not technically owe in order to avoid offending non-believers. Now, why is that important? Why, why do I bring that up? Why, I, I will tell you off the bat, this sentence has stuck with me all week long. All week long, when Jesus says so clearly in verse 27, however, so a contrasting statement, right? So he is exempt. And then he says, however, not to give offense to them. That has been stuck with me. Now, the word that Jesus uses, and I think this is important, is the word scandalon. It's where we get the English word scandal. Uh, there's a couple ways to translate this. In this particular case, it means cause someone to stumble. Jesus is saying, I, in order to not cause these people to stumble, stumble over what? What are they stumbling over? Ultimately, they're stumbling over the gospel. They're stumbling over Jesus' mission, his work. He doesn't want them to stumble because of his actions, and therefore he does something that he doesn't even have to do. Now, we were in Bible Sunday school this morning talking about Isaac. Isaac decided out of faith to lie. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's not exactly true. He decided, he decided out of his lack of faith to lie in order to, to say that his wife was his sister. In order to not potentially be killed and have his wife taken. He lied. He created a scandal. Because he decided to operate outside of his faith, outside of his convictions. But Jesus here, operating within his convictions, decides to do something that he doesn't even need to do. You see, Jesus was not trying to be offensive. He wasn't Howard Stern. He wasn't a shock jock, which, by the way, Howard Stern is not the first shock jock. Uh, I found a list on Wikipedia of shock jocks, by the way, many of which I've never heard of because it turns out that they get fired pretty quick. 
So anyway, uh, but but I use Howard Stern as an example because he just keeps coming back, man. The dude's got to be like 90, but he still has black hair. That's why I say he's got to dye it. Anyway, Jesus was not a shock jock. He wasn't aiming to be offensive to non-believers, but he was making every effort to live peaceably with the same Jews that were going to get him killed. He endeavored with every fiber of his being to not cause others to stumble. And I think this shows something very important about the Lord's motives. He used his own freedom, his freedom from needing to pay this tax, to pay it. He did it anyway. Because he did not want to bring reproach on his work and his mission. Or to say it another way, Christ saw fit to endure injustice to avoid being an offense. We live in a world today, in our culture, where it is very easy to cry out against any manner, color, stripe of injustice. I don't want to endure any sort of injustice. In fact, I'm going to write letters. I'm going to send letters to organizations, to congressmen, to declare every single injustice. Or I'm going to go on CNN. Because everybody listens. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but, but the point is that in our culture... Any form of injustice is regarded with such absolute hatred that we can't even endure it. It's an injustice that these pews have an uneven level of, of styro, or not styrofoam, but cushioning. Therefore, I'm going to write the pastor and I'm going to leave a note in the comment box. That has, by the way, never happened. I have been in churches where that has happened. Not exactly that, but we got uh, my church that I was at in Beaverton. We replaced these pews that uh, were aging with, with chairs because we got a great deal on the chairs. And the chairs were 21 inches wide. But if you go online, you can buy chairs that are 24 inches wide. And so we got uh, a bunch of complaints about how the chairs were not wide enough. Meanwhile, I'm thinking about myself as a relatively wide gentleman taking a tape measure to myself and going, that's wide enough for me. Who's, who's complaining? <laughs> but we cry out against every possible injustice. We take our freedom, our freedom in Christ, and we can't endure even the smallest bit of problem. And yet here's Jesus seeing fit to endure an injustice of having to pay a, an unjust tax for himself. And he doesn't want to offend non-believers. And so therefore, he, he suffers an injustice. Friends, we need to learn this. This is our, this is our application from this text is to look at the, the heart and the manner of life of Jesus Christ and realize that there are certain things we need to endure so that we don't put reproach on the redemptive work of the Lord in the gospel. Listen, the greatest injustice ever endured in human history was Jesus Christ on the cross. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. The just suffering for the unjust. 
the only perfect and, 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 and righteous person in the history of this earth dying like a criminal in order to rescue criminals. Oh, how we ought to think of our own freedom in Jesus to avoid being a stumbling block or offense to non-believers. Which, by the way, is another way to translate this word, scandal, is to create a stumbling block. A better example in our modern cartoony days would be like throwing a banana peel in front of someone and hoping they slip on it. Jesus did not want to mess people up. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote actually very forcibly about this mentality. And I love the epistles because the epistles do the hard work of applying the text for you. I mean that seriously. Uh, the, the writers of the epistles wanted to take what Jesus taught and, and, and show how to live it out in the lives of believers. And so Paul wrote about this topic, again, very forcibly in Romans 12. He writes this, verses 14 to 17. Bless those, make happy those who persecute, who harm you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or prideful, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, this, that's where he changes from just believers. Uh, he says in the sight of all, implying everyone. If possible, he concludes... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you. Listen, I know that there are some people that no matter what you do, they're offended. I get it. I've been with those people. You show up with cookies and they go, oh, thanks. Oh, chocolate chip. I like oatmeal raisin. Meanwhile, in the back of your head, you're like, nobody likes oatmeal raisin. Don't lie to me. But so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is what Jesus is doing. He's paying a tax he doesn't need to pay in order to not be an offense or a stumbling block to non-believers. Paul also says, well, just a, a non-offensive life is lived out, by the way, by seeking to live peaceably with all so far as it depends on you. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes again, verses 32 to 33, give no offense. Give no offense, none, no stumbling blocks to Jews or to Greeks, meaning everyone, or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul is saying that he is enduring reproach and shame in order to seek after peace with non-believers, bringing them to salvation. Our image to outsiders matters. Now, lest you think that it's only Paul who wrote this, Jesus was also very clear on how to live with those around us. In Mark chapter 9, verse 50, uh, Jesus says this, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? How many of you have heard that verse before? Yeah, all of us, right? But then Jesus goes on, Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Being salt 
in this world means being at peace with those around us. If you or if we Christians, and when I say this, if we, I mean since we Christians, are known as mean, judgmental, terrible neighbors, that shows that we are not being salt in this world. Jesus says, be salt and light. You have to be both. It's not okay to be light and not salt. It's not okay to be salt and not light. The nature of a Christian should never to be an offense to non-believers. Never, ever, 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 ever. Um, I've got several more verses, but I'm going to skip one. Uh, I would recommend reading 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17 in terms of a civic duty of a Christian. Um, specifically, verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Which, by the way, he defines as not honoring the emperor. Um, and then Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12, gives an instructions to the church in Thessalonica, which were wayward and lazy. He writes this, um, that their goal should be to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now that be dependent on no one basically means don't be a bum in society, which is, by the way, exactly what the Thessalonians did. Christians need to be fervent, fervent in seeking to live peaceably with those around them. And that is what Jesus is doing. He is paying something that he doesn't need to pay in order to not be an offense or a stumbling block. Now listen, our Lord did not back down from proclaiming truth. And when I say truth, I don't mean, I, I don't mean anything political. I, I mean the gospel. I mean the Bible. When the, the, Lord, the, the Lord was so gracious to present the truth in a way that convicted and caused repentance and, and angered the Pharisees because they needed to be convicted but refused. Most of the time people get angry at biblical truth is because they need to be convicted, but they have a hard heart and they refuse to listen to it. But Jesus was also mindful of not becoming a stumbling block for people to hear and accept that truth. Don't be an offense. And if you are being an offense, then, then repent. If we are Christ's people, then we also should abstain from being shock jocks. We should abstain from being offensive. And we should do all that we can to avoid causing others to stumble. Now, I realize that there's a bit of irony in this sermon and the fact that I am literally offending a lot of people. <laughs> um, but if we take away anything from this, the sermon summary and, and even the sermon title, Jesus did not want to be an offense to others and was willing to set aside his divine rights as son of God. I mean that. That's what we should be doing. We should be caring about what our neighbors think of us. 
We should be asking our neighbors what they think of us. I mean, that would be an awkward question, of course. You don't go to your neighbor and go, hey, neighbor, what do you think of me? But you should be caring. You should be talking to your neighbors. You should be engaging them. You should be asking them questions like what they think of Jesus, what they think of Christians. It's been really fun to do. In the year and a half that I've been here, I love going down to the gas station. And I love asking the gas station attendants, which seem to rotate out every couple months, um, at least one or two guys. And I'll, I'll ask them. I'll ask them questions like, hey, where's First Baptist Church of Toledo? Nine out of ten times, they either say, I don't know, or they direct me to Newport. And we are literally around the corner. <laughs> I like to ask them, hey, what do you think the gospel is? Have you ever heard the word the gospel? Like, what do you, can you describe the gospel? And most of the time, people don't do it right. But it gives me an opportunity to say, oh, yeah, okay, let me, let me explain. Let me talk about it. And I don't try to do it just to offend them. I, I don't say, hey, what do you think the gospel is? And then they say it wrong, and I say, you're wrong! Jesus died for you, you sinner, and you don't even know what the gospel is. I don't do that. I don't try to offend. I just try to talk, engage in conversation. And I try to avoid being an offense. And I hate using myself as a good example because, frankly, I offend people all the time. I'm a bad, shot, or I'm a, I'm a bad witness sometimes, most of the time. <laughs> people, people think I'm arrogant because I'm monotone. <laughs> and I don't mean to come off that way. So, if our Lord was willing to set aside his divine rights and pay a tax that he was not needing to pay, then so also we should be willing to set, us our, set aside some of our rights in order to endure justice, injustice so that the gospel can go forth. Now, today is Communion Sunday. <laughs> Everybody should know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. Right now, start shaking. If you need help opening this little monstrosity, please ask your neighbors. Um, if you happen to open it where the juice does not, or that the juice comes out first and not the wafer, you'll never get the wafer out, I'm warning you. So you have to be super careful to, uh, to take this out. But, the, but, but communion is done to, uh, to celebrate that which the Lord did on the cross. Um, he, it's, it's, it's done in remembrance of Jesus having the last supper with the disciples. And when we, when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're celebrating Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which is an irony to me because the death was so painful. Like celebrating it is really more celebrating the effect. Um, I would take... Take this with caution, knowing that if you take this in an unworthy manner, you're heaping judgment on yourself, which could be clari clarified as maybe you're going to drink two of these. And I don't know why you would, but maybe you're going to drink two of these because you really like them. Weirdo. Uh, <laughs> but, but drinking it just because you want to, as opposed to because you love the Lord and you want to honor him and remember his sacrifice. Um, so... Just take this with caution, 
fence yourself from taking it, you know, put it back in. If you're under church discipline or, or, or you don't know the Lord, don't take it if you don't know the Lord. But I would like us to stand and recite the Apostles' Creed before we take it, which is in your bulletin on the inside. This is done in churches across the world as a reminder of what Christians believe. So let's read and then we can take communion together. The Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he raised his, uh, his, his meal. Oh, no, I just totally lost my place. Sorry. That was brilliant. Uh, he, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and eat the cracker. Mmm, so yummy. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Go ahead and drink. Let's pray. Lord, I'm glad that these simple acts declare your sacrifice. The, the just suffering for the unjust. God, I pray that you would remind us of your shed blood and your, your pierced body as we take these elements and you would remind us of the reality of your suffering just as real as it was that the, we ate and drank this stuff was your suffering on the cross. Be glorified in us, Lord, in Jesus's name. Amen. The love of God was so great that it demands our lives and our all. And that means doing all we can to avoid offending non-believers in this case. Go in peace, saints.